The passage in Luke, uh, where Luke describes Jesus sending out uh, the disciples, 70 disciples, uh, you know, two by two, uh, reminds me of what it is to canvas in a neighborhood for a political candidate, an issue, or a cause. Um, it is, you know, Jesus says, you know, he gives these directions to them. You know, don't take a purse, don't take a bag, uh, don't, don't uh, talk to people on the road, say peace to the, to the household you go to. If you're rejected, you know, shake that, off, off your, shake that dust off your feet. It is so similar to canvassing a neighborhood for a political cause. Um, I've done that in the past. Some of you have, I'm sure, done it. You, you sign up uh, to support this cause or this candidate. You get the call to gather, to gather and you, uh, in, a, in a basement of a church or a school or somewhere, and you um, get your directions from the district manager or the campaign chair. And, and you know, they'll, they'll say things like, go in pairs. Uh, going in pairs is, I always appreciate that because you can support each other. Sometimes we, we, the pair will go to a, a house together. Sometimes the pair will work different sides of the street, and at the end of the street, they'll, they'll link up and, and compare notes, and then they'll go and do the next block on separate sides. Um, you know, don't greet people. What I think that means is your work is urgent. Don't waste your time uh, in chit-chat. Visit the houses. Uh, make your case. Don't take a lot with you. You know, keep your hands free so that you can take notes. Then he says, I'm sending you as lambs among wolves. There have been times I felt like a lamb among wolves. You know, knock on a door and the person is rude, the person is hostile, the person is angry. They don't believe uh, the cause for which I'm soliciting. They don't like the candidate for which I'm urging them to vote. And I do feel like, um, like I am a lamb among wolves. Usually the advice is don't argue, just keep your peace, just thank them and move on. Shake it off. You know, what Jesus would say is shake the dust off your feet. Nowadays we'd say just shake it off, move on, be ready and focused on the next house. Part of canvassing for a cause or a candidate is completing the, the form for each house you go to. Uh, and, and it usually goes something like this. Check the column next to the person's name, yes, no, maybe. Yes, they are supportive of this cause. We don't need to visit them again. We don't need to badger them. Just make sure they know when election day is um, and what, what, when the polls are open and where their poll is and if they need a ride. Check the yes box. Check no if it's quite clear you're wasting your time trying to get them to change their mind. And then check maybe if they're just undecided, that they might need another visit, they might need somebody um, that, that specializes in the questions they have. They might need a call, uh, you know, when a person gets back, can get back to them. So check 
yes, no, or maybe when you're canvassing in a neighborhood. Jesus is asking his disciples basically to canvass these villages and uh, neighborhoods before he arrives. What he's asking them to do is canvass and ascertain their interest in the kingdom of God. Jesus is launching a new kind of people who will be a blessing to the world. Go to these neighborhoods, represent the kingdom of God, talk to them about the kingdom of God, and then check yes, no, or maybe to ascertain their level of interest. Jesus is launching a new kind of people to be a blessing to the world. Well, what does this new kind of people look like? Paul says it is this new kind of person is animated by the Spirit of God. They have God's Spirit. This new kind of person has joy, love, peace, self-control, kindness, generosity, patience, faithfulness. It's almost like defining the kingdom of God. If you've got a group of people that have that spirit among them, you're pretty close to the kingdom of God. What he's describing is if you have God's spirit, you have these things, these qualities in your life. You are made in the image of God. And one that has these qualities is fully human. For Jesus to have love, joy, peace, generosity, and kindness is to be fully human. Are you interested in that? Yes? No? Maybe? Paul goes on to say, but there are things that are opposed to the kingdom of God. And he gives this long list, you know, envy, jealousy, enmity, you know, simmering hatred, licentiousness, which is, which is not obeying any moral code or, or regulations, uh, uh, strife, drunkenness, why would he be opposed to these things? Well, they're not in the image of God. These things are not of God. The other thing is, these things get in the way of our loving God and actually loving ourselves. We love ourselves when we, not when we're envious or not when we're jealous. We love ourselves when we have peace and kindness and generosity. Buried in this list of, um, of what, what we often call sins or th things of the flesh, sins of the flesh, and Paul really isn't talking about the flesh here as we understand it. He's talking about self-centeredness. You know, envy and jealousy and strife and hatred are about self-centeredness which is also opposed to God. Buried in these, this long list of things 
he talks about factions. Now, usually factions doesn't get much emphasis when it's up against sex and fornication. That, that kind of attracts people more. Um, fornication, uh, fornication. See, I was already talking about that. <laughs> factions. Factions. We're talking about factions, okay? Factions are cliques. They're tribalism. They're groups. And Paul talks about that as being opposed to the Spirit of God and not of the kingdom of God. Factions. Factions are this kind of groupism. It's where we're driven by the, the dogma of our group, the purity of our group, the habits of our group. Does the United States have an issue with groupism? Are we divided into groups, factions of red and blue and black and white and male and female and gay and straight and citizen and immigrant? Do we suffer from factions and groupism that prevent the kingdom of God? Does Christianity suffer from groupism? Where Christians compare the best of Christianity to the worst of another religion. Where we are judgmental and feel that we are better than other religions. Does United Methodism suffer from groupism, where we are divided into tribes and cliques, and it doesn't represent the kingdom of God? I'm not going to go into that. Does King Avenue Church sometimes suffer from groupism, where we think we are better than other churches? that we have the answer than that other churches don't. I think sometimes we, I know I do, when I think of us. The thing about factions, as with all these other things that Paul lists, is they not only keep us from the image of God, they keep us from loving our neighbor. Now, the thing that's kind of insidious about factions is we will love our neighbor who's in our group, we will love the people in our tribe, but we don't love the people outside our tribe. We treat them differently. I can love my neighbor that I've made up in my mind. I can love that neighbor who is charming, who's like my grandmother, who, who cooks well and loves me unconditionally. But what about the neighbor that I don't make up, the neighbor that I actually have to live with, the neighbor that's right there in front of me, that neighbor who might have body odor, that neighbor 
who almost ran me over with his scooter on the sidewalk. <laughs> that neighbor who moved in and can't seem to find where the dumpster is and just leaves it on our property line. That neighbor who plays music loudly. That neighbor who is so aggressive and is always right and always knows everything. That neighbor who isn't my color of politics. Can I love that neighbor, the actual neighbor in front of me who just rubs me the wrong way? I find this is where I need to become a new person with that spirit of God that Paul promises to us. It's interesting in this passage, Paul says, the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What interests me about that is what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He leaves God out of it. The whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Maybe he forgot God. Maybe he just was preoccupied. But I wonder if there is <laughs> a point here in saying the whole law is summed up and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does God, does our religion, does religion, does nationalism, but we'll just talk about religion, does it get in the way of loving our neighbor? Does my Christianity get in the way of my loving a Muslim? of my loving a Jew, of my loving a Hindu. Remember years ago when I was at Summit, we had quite a few Iranian students who came to the church um, because they wanted to get familiar with the, with the United States, but they were very concerned about what was going on in Iran. This was the time of the, the hostages. And they asked us to pray for Iran. And I remember a student, another student from the United States came up to me and said, why are we praying for Iranians? And I thought, well, why wouldn't we pray for Iranians? But sometimes we think that the kingdom of God is only for Christians, only of Christians, and only by Christians. But if the commandment is, love your neighbor as yourself, other religions can do that. Atheists can do that. Christianity can get in the way sometimes, just as other people's religion can get in the way of them loving their neighbor. 
Jesus never said, you shall love your religion. He said you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And is it possible that sometimes my Christianity and my belief system gets in the way of my loving my neighbor? Where I look down on my neighbor for not being Christian. Is it possible? And is it possible that actually I am being Christian when I love my neighbor instead of my religion? Should my religion ever get in the way of loving my neighbor? Barbara Brown Taylor, who um, is an Episcopal priest, and now she gives lectures around the country, um, told the story of giving a lecture at an interfaith um, workshop at a small Christian college. And also on the, on the uh, schedule for the workshop was a rabbi, and the rabbi uh, gave his gave his talk on a, on a Friday afternoon, and the planners of the, uh, of the event thought it would be nice if the rabbi just then led the, led the group in a Jewish Shabbat service on the Friday night, which would be followed by a communion service. And Barbara Brown Taylor then says, well, the rabbi did his thing, and then he left the stage, and the, the organizers just cleared out all the Jewish stuff, just got rid of all the Jewish stuff so they could bring out the Christian stuff. And she said, it really wasn't a very good symbol that they, that they did that. And, and she had gotten to know the rabbi, and, and she was standing in the back of the, of the room. Uh, she didn't have anything to do. And the rabbi came and stood next to her. And she, she knew by then that the rabbi had had numerous uh, family members killed in the Holocaust and that he had been named uh, after an uncle who had been killed in the Holocaust. Um, and, and they talked about the awkwardness of a Jew in a, in a Christian society. And she said, you know, for the first time she, she heard the communion liturgy as she stood next to him, she heard the communion liturgy through the eye, through the ears of, um, not of a Christian, and what was, what was being said. And she started to feel a little bit uncomfortable for her Jewish neighbor. And then she said, when they started to pass the bread and the wine, a student came, came to them, and the rabbi just took a step back and said, no thank you. And then she said, she hadn't planned, she hadn't thought about it at all, but she stepped back and said, no thank you. And she said, was I being a good Christian or a bad Christian? Was I setting aside my beliefs and my doctrine so that I could love my neighbor? Did I actually pass the test of faithfulness as a Christian by actually not doing the sacrament? 
it's interesting that Jesus, we don't know at all what Jesus looked like. I'd like to think he's probably about 5'11", bald, with glasses, just a little bit overweight. You know, we know that Jesus ate, we know that he slept, we know that he was thirsty, we know that he got tired, but we don't know what he looked like. And the resurrected Jesus was not really recognized by the disciples. They didn't recognize him when he was a gardener. He appeared as a gardener. They didn't recognize him when he appeared as a stranger. They didn't recognize him when he appeared as a, as a fisherman. They didn't recognize him when he appeared as a prisoner or a homeless person or a lonely person or a naked person. They didn't recognize him. I think it's intentional that we don't know what Jesus looked like. For it wouldn't be inclusive anymore of loving our neighbor. We would love those in Jesus' tribe and not other tribes. But that we don't know what he looks like, we have to look hard at our neighbor because he made it quite clear that we find him in our neighbor. We have to look hard at that neighbor who rubs us the wrong way to see Jesus. We have to look intensely and intently at our neighbor. And when we do, we are made in the image of God. We become authentically human. For we are loving our neighbor as Jesus wants us to love our neighbor with love and joy and peace and generosity and kindness. And when we love our neighbor and look for Jesus in our neighbor, the kingdom of God has come near. Are you interested in 